God, we do thank you so much for loving us and for being the Father that we need. And God, I pray now as we look into your word that you'll speak to our hearts, that we'll be open, God, and that we'll hear what we need to hear and do what we need to do. And it's in your name that I pray. Amen. You may be seated. Let's give Justin and the band a hand for a great job. I don't know if Zach told you this during the welcome, but we have uh, two of our ministers and their wives and another family that are in Vermont this morning on a mission trip working with a, a church that we have helped for about seven or eight years now up there. And Josh took... Zach, do we know how many? But uh, some of our senior hire on a uh, left after connection groups to go on a, uh, a, a day retreat. So we, uh, we've got people spread out, but that's great. We're so glad that you are here. You know, how you deal with people is super important. If you're married, how you deal with your husband or wife can play a part in still having one later down the road. Uh, having a happy marriage. Uh, if you have children, how you deal with them, uh, no matter their age, is very important. Children, how you deal with your parents can affect your uh, joy in life greatly. No question about that. How we deal with people determines so much of, of our impact on them and our, our ability to relate and interact with them. Well, we're going to be in John chapter 8 this morning if you have a Bible. If you don't, the scriptures will be on the screens. John chapter 8, we're going to be in this passage next week. We're in a sermon series titled For Times Like These. And, and what we're looking at is how, how do Christians, how does a church navigate in, in the times that we live in? We live in a, an ever-changing world in our country. We would have to say America has almost become post-Christian, that Christianity is on the out, it's not on the up in our country. And how do churches and how do Christians live effectively and properly? If you're not a Christian this morning, I hope you'll see what's laid out in this story and you'll see that this is attractive because this is how a real church and a real Christian is to be. If you were here Wednesday night, I mentioned I have a study team of people that are helping me with different parts of the sermons and Mrs. Donna Lewis helped me this morning and if there's anything you disagree with about the sermon, I'm sure this was Donna's input, so just keep that in mind. But let's begin with this because I want to talk today about how you deal with sinners. I'm going to give you a hint, you're a sinner, so that's, we'll talk about that more in a moment. But how do we deal with people that are so far removed from, from what you may or may, what I may believe is morally and ethically right? Number one, let's begin with this, don't judge people. Would you repeat that out loud with me? Don't judge people. People, Okay. John chapter 8, we're going to start in verse 1. In verse 1, it says, But Jesus went out to the Mount of Olives. Let me give you the background. The day before, Jesus had been arguing and fighting with the religious leaders, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes. These were the Green Beret of Christianity or Judaism, excuse me. They should have been Jesus' best supporters and the guys that were cheering him on, but, but they were not. They did 
not properly understand the Bible and the way they interpreted it and lived it out was bad. He'd been fighting with them. So when evening came, he went to the Mount of Olives. The Mount of Olives in Jerusalem, even today, is about a mile or two from the temple. So it's an easy walk. Uh, it's possible he went to the little village of Bethany and spent the night with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, some of his friends, uh, or maybe or they just camped out there. But the, the next morning in verse 2, it says that at dawn he appeared again in the temple courts where all the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach. He's probably, the temple is a huge structure, he's probably in an area called the court of women. The court of women, uh, a non-Jewish person, and I'm not Jewish, I couldn't have entered into that point, but uh, all Jewish women, all Jewish men could. The treasury's in there, in other words, the offering plates are in there. And, and so Jesus sits down and he begins to teach. In verse 3 through 6, it says, the teachers of the law, everything in this story is important. Brought in a woman caught, did you catch that? Caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. And Jesus said, teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. And the law of Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Now, what do you say, Jesus? They were using this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. Let me just say this. If you want to play games with Jesus, you will lose every time. <laughs> just get that up, up front. You know, you're not going to beat him in a serious contest. But Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. Okay, here's some of the, the things that are going on. One, without going into any detail... For someone to be caught in adultery, there is two, correct? Y'all are so wonderfully naive. Maybe your parents will explain this to you when you get home. Yes, yes, it takes, there's two. Notice they only brought one. That's a really important part of the story. They only brought one. And they're trying to trap Jesus. What are they trying to do? Well, in this day and age, when Jesus lived, they were under Roman law. Now, you read the Old Testament. This is part of the confusion sometimes in the Old Testament. There's different aspects to the law in the Old Testament. One is the civil law. That's the governmental laws that were uh, intact when Israel was a country governing itself in the Old Testament. Such as, if you committed adultery, you were to be killed. Capital punishment crime. Uh, by the way, young people, if you were disrespectful to your parents bad enough, it was capital punishment crime too. My parents reminded me that often when I was growing up. But by Jesus' day, Rome ran the, the, the world. So the Jewish people, the civil law, they couldn't practice it. And so for, for Jesus to have said, let's kill her and follow the Old Testament law, they could have gone to the Roman leaders and said, look, he's guilty of treason, insurrection. He's trying to uh, subvert your, your Roman laws. Also, if Jesus would have said, kill her, his reputation for being a friend to the bad people of society would have been completely shot too. So that's trap number one. But trap number two, if Jesus says, I won't fall into that, so I will, I will say that we won't stone her, then what they say at that point is, you're breaking the Old Testament law. So they're trying to catch Jesus, but always remember, when you play chess with Jesus, you will lose. <laughs> when you want to play games with Jesus, you will lose. So that's the background. But let me tell you the heart here. The heart is 
These guys are just judgmental little sissies is what it amounts to. Their heart towards Jesus is so wrong. Their heart towards this lady is so wrong. And I think to kick off this sermon and the one next week that we've got to start with this because this is the heart of the matter. God tells us don't judge people. If you're taking notes, Matthew 7, 1 is probably the the biggie of the biggie. Matthew 7, 1 says, judge not, lest you be judged. Don't judge people. Now, there's confusion. What does it mean to judge people? You have to make distinctions in relationships, don't you? You have to, if you are intelligent, you have to decide who you're going to marry or not marry. You have to make a decision. When you're hiring people, you have to make a decision. Should I hire this person? And you hire the wrong person, you'll end up having to fire the wrong person eventually. About uh, decisions about work or relationships, is it good and healthy for you or your kids to be around certain people? You have to make distinctions. The difference is judgment comes from a bad heart. Let me define to you biblically what the New Testament word judgment means. It means to, to make a division and a separation. It's condemnation. It's passing a sentence on someone. You see the difference? It's saying you're bad, and it's normally saying I'm good. It's categorizing people. It's almost always done from a heart of some type of prejudice, and it's always negative. I love what Charles Swindoll, the great writer, says. Judging people is when we play the label game. They're drunk. They're a drug addict. They're an adulterer. They're gay. They're an idiot. It's when we put labels on people. It's fun. It's easy. It's normal. And it's sinful. Why is it sinful? Separate sermon unto itself. And let me give you some highlights. It hurts people. You know, I'm going to tell you something. And I'm going to be as sweet as I can. But if if everybody in this room, starting with me, If we were picked on enough or picked out enough, there'd be a lot to judge us on too. You know that? There'd be a lot to judge us on. It hurts. You're not qualified to judge people. Well, I have a PhD in judging. No, you don't. You're not qualified. You don't know people's heart. You can have a pretty good indication of where they're coming from if you but behavior consistently, but you don't know other people's heart. You just do not. You don't know their heart. We're seldom 100% objective. In other words, anytime we look at people, we have some kind of bias. Have you ever known the parent who's got the kid who's the biggest idiot in the world, but they go, my kid is so wonderful. Have you ever seen that before? And you love them, and you go, you know, I'd like to... Do a business, sell them, a, a, you know, an oceanfront property in Arizona because they're pretty naive. We have some kind of bias. But here's one of the last things that's so important. We never know all the facts. We make judgments on people, and we never know all the facts. We, almost always, there's something we don't know about the situation we're passing condemnation on it. Stop it, Christians. Church, stop it. Recent survey, people who who said they were non-Christians, they were unchurched people, 
90% of them said when describing Christians, they said, I would describe Christians as judgmental. Wow. I think that's high. I think that can become an excuse. I think that's from people who aren't in church, who are judging us. <laughs> but I think they're on to something, that that's our reputation. I love what someone said. I don't know who said it, but, but it goes something like this. There's so much good in the worst of us and so much bad in the best of us, we shouldn't judge any of us. Isn't that true? You know, people who are, who are locked away in prison today for horrible things they've done, there's some, there's some good things they do with their life. And there's some people sitting in church who are awful good who have some dark secrets. It's just better to obey God and not judge people. Amen? Amen. That's our first don't. Here's our say. This is a bunch of don'ts today, but I think they're good don'ts. Don't be on a witch hunt. <laughs> Don't judge people and don't go looking for trouble. Verse 3, the teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. They were looking for trouble. They obviously, it's, it's almost certainly they had set this lady up. I mean, the odds of them coming in and catching and the man getting away, it's almost certain it was a setup. They were looking for a way to get Jesus. They certainly didn't mind hammering this woman. I want to ask you this morning, are are, are you on a witch hunt? I mean, do you like to blow your phone up or text and hear the latest bad stuff about other people? You get on the Internet and you look people up, hoping to find the latest garbage. Good thought. God has not made you nor me the president of the sin patrol. Don't judge people and don't be on a witch hunt. Here's number three. Don't humiliate people. People mess up. People sin. People are in a lifestyle of sin. Listen, Don't expect non-Christians to live like Christians. Isn't that one of the dumbest things we do? We expect people who don't know Christ to live like they have Christ. I want to read verse 3 again. Verse 3 says, The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Okay, they are absolutely trying to humiliate Jesus, but think of what they're doing with this woman. First of all, the law, which they were supposed to be so great at keeping, they're breaking. There was a law that said if someone was caught in adultery, you had a separate court for them, that it was a private court with some rabbis. This was not the place for that at all. So what they do, Jesus is teaching. There's probably lots of people gathered around him. And can you imagine how this woman felt? Because you know they're dragging her. She's probably just barely covered physically. And they're dragging her in there. And they break through the crowds of people. It'd be like somebody coming in today in the middle of this. This would be a little bit disruptive and I'm sure humiliating to a woman. And they, they break in this group where Jesus is teaching They make her stand, is what it says. They make her stand in front of the group and in front of Jesus. And they say, hey, 
we just caught her having sex with someone that she's not married to. Wow. Do we have to sometimes deal with things that come up? Absolutely. Do sometimes we have to, if it's a public situation, deal with it in a public way? Absolutely. But I want to tell you, in the world we live in today, if Christians and churches are going to stay relevant, we've got to be places that don't humiliate people. We've got to be places that are safe and good and sweet for people. Holy, absolutely. But loving, I must. Megan Fox is an actress, and I don't know a lot about her, but I know that she grew up very active in church as a kid. And she talked about her life in this interview as a, uh, you know, as a public figure, how tough it is and that, that, you know, sometimes you worry about people wanting to hurt you, but that people are always wanting to take advantage of you. They want your money. They, you know, there's always someone after you. And she said, I still, to this day, when I go to church, it's my safe place. Isn't that awesome? My church is my safe place. I want to tell you, First Baptist, we need to be a safe place place. Amen? Amen. Where the best of people and the worst of people can come and feel loved and feel safe. There's a lot of teaching in the Bible that talks about how we treat others. It comes back on us. You want to humiliate other people when they're caught in sin and because of their behavior or their morals? I would just tell you to buy you a good helmet and a mouthpiece because it's coming right back at you. At some point, don't humiliate people. Number four, don't forget you are a sinner too. I think this brings it together here. I think this really helps. Why should we not judge people? Why should we not humiliate people? Why should we not be on a witch hunt? Because we are a sinner too. In verse six, They were using this question as a trap in order and a basis for accusing Jesus. But he bent down, he started to write on the ground with his finger. And verse 7, when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and he said to them, if any of you is without sin, let him be the first to cast the stone. Let me pause right here and say the law basically said that that if you're going to stone somebody for a capital punishment crime in the Old Testament, the first people to chunk the rocks were the witnesses. Because if you're going to kill somebody, one, you better have some people who can verify that, that what you're saying happens happened. And if you're for them dying, then here's the rock, buddy. You need to be the first to, to, to throw the stone at them. And then Jesus... Uh, throws on that little curveball in there. He goes, uh, hey, you know what? Uh, Y'all go ahead and do this uh, if there's no sin in your life. Verse 8 through 8 and 9. And he stooped down and wrote on the ground. At this, those who heard him began to go away one at a time. The older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. You know, we, uh, we, we wonder, and there'll be speculation until Jesus comes back. What was he writing on the ground? Why did the Bible leave that out? 
It's interesting, when we got the Ten Commandments, uh, we're told the Ten Commandments were given by the finger of God, and here you have the finger of God writing on the sand or the, the dirt there in the temple. That's pretty cool, isn't it? What did he write? I think he wrote First Baptist Rust and Rocks, and they just didn't get it. And uh, That's a joke. Um, some people say he wrote the Ten Commandments. Some people think he may have written a list of all the women these men had slept with that weren't their wives. That would have got them moving pretty quick, wouldn't it? Some think maybe he wrote the name of the man who was caught in this, and that would have alarmed them that he kind of knew what was going on. The good thing is, the bad thing is, is it's all speculation. We don't know what he wrote in the sand. But we know this, that when he said to them, Hey, you want a humiliator? I'm not. Jesus did not even humiliate them. And he never humiliates the woman. You want to judge her? You want to be on a witch hunt? That's great. Now it's time to kill her. And since you have no sin in your life, you go ahead and do it. You know, one of the greatest lessons we can learn is that we're all still sinners. I want you to do something. We've done it before. This is fun, though. I want you to take your, your pointer finger, and I want you to point to the person to your right. And I want you to repeat after the pastor. Look at him. You've got to kind of look at him. Say, you are a sinner. Point to your left. Come on, men. You get to this with your wife. You are a sinner. Nate, you point to the right both times. That's cheating. <laughs> now, put your finger on your own chest and repeat after the pastor. I am a sinner too. Isn't that good? No, it's not good. It's just true. Romans 3.23 says, For all of the bad people have sinned, and all the bad people fall short of the glory of God. Right? No, it says for all. And if you were at church Wednesday night, we talked about that word all. That means everyone and anyone. And it means we have all sinned. How many of you saw the movie The Passion? If you have never seen The Passion, you need to see The Passion. I believe it's the best movie about the crucifixion of Christ ever put out, at least to this day. And Mel Gibson directed it. He's an actor, but he wasn't in the movie except one part of the movie. One of his hands is in the movie as a Roman soldier holding a nail. And they ask him, why would you want your hand in that scene? He goes, because my sins are the sins that put Jesus on the cross. Isn't that awesome? See, your sins put Jesus on the cross. And my sins put Jesus on the cross. There was a monk in the 10th century. By the way, monks sit around and look at the wall and hum all day so they can come up with great thoughts. And this monk said this. This monk said, if you will always be conscious of your sinful nature, you will never have enough time to be conscious of others' sinful nature. Amen? You're a sinner too. Don't forget that. And here's the last thing, and that's this. Don't compromise with sin. See, I think this is the part of this story that's been left out. I think we like the first part of it a lot, especially if we've ever been one who's guilty of things. But this is just as important. People you know and I know who struggle with, with all kinds of things. Maybe you struggle with a lot of things. 
we all struggle with sin, and, and the Bible tells us don't judge, don't witch hunt, don't humiliate people. But look in verse 10 and 11. Jesus straightened up. He'd been bent over. He sat back up. And he said, woman, where are they? Now, now I know when you hear woman, if you go home this afternoon, men, and you say you're sitting in your recliner and you say to your wife, woman, bring me the remote and some ice cream. You may get the remote in the ice cream, right? But that was a, a Greek way of saying, sweet lady, has nobody condemned you? No one, sir, she said. And then Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Jesus declared, now go and leave your life of sin. This is super important. Jesus didn't say to her, hey, I love you. They didn't condemn you. Everybody does what you do, and I'm okay with it. I accept your sinful lifestyle. That's just who you are. Let's embrace and sing Kumbaya. Jesus looked at this lady who was either probably a prostitute or a serial adulterer. If you don't know what adultery is by definition, it's a married person having sex with someone who they're not married with. And he looked at her and he said, look, I'm forgiving you. But you go and you be different from this point on. You repent. You let God into your heart and your life and you be different from this point on. I'm going to talk to you and me first. Then we'll talk about those out there. Jesus loves you. People don't need to judge you. People don't need to humiliate you, but never take God's grace for granted. God doesn't look at you and me and go, your sin's okay. God loves us just the way we are. God doesn't want us to stay the way we are. He's always trying to get us to be more like Jesus. He never looks at my sin and says, it's okay. He's always saying, I love you, but you need to repent, and you need to get it right. Listen, you're taking notes. Great quote, repentance is not about perfection. It's about direction. It doesn't mean you're not going to struggle. It doesn't mean you're not going to fall. It just means with the help of God, you're going to live a different life. You're going to go a different direction with your life. It's, repentance is not perfection. It's about direction. Now, how does this apply to other people? How does this apply as a church to people we want to come in our church who are far from God, whose lifestyles may be really far from what the Bible says? How do we handle it? We love them. We don't judge them. We don't condemn them. But we never embrace sinful lifestyle. Here's the biggest lie so far in the 21st century in America. That if you don't accept someone's lifestyle, you don't love them. In fact, I think they even take it sometimes another step and say, if you don't accept someone's lifestyle, you hate them. You guys know what I'm talking about? We hear this all the time today. That is a lie. I'll just use myself as an example. I go crazy, and and I start doing drugs, and I'm breaking in homes to feed my drug habit, and I'm at the jail, and you come to see me. 
you need to tell me you love me. You were glad at one time in the past that I was your pastor. But you don't need to say, you know what? We're, we're okay with your, your thieving. We're okay with your drug addiction. We're okay with your being bad to your wife. And, and we're okay. You don't need to. You love the person, but you can hate the sin. That's exactly what Jesus was doing. How do we live in days like this effectively? We don't judge or condemn, but we don't compromise with sin. We don't call what's wrong right. The Bible says, Romans 14, 22, don't be guilty of sin by what you approve of that's wrong. We don't compromise with sin. I want to give you one last thought. This is a quote by John Stout, a preacher. I think it's a great quote. He says, the sign or the symbol of Christianity is the cross, not the scales. Now think about that. Scales are what you judge, you weigh, good and bad. Scales are an instrument of, to some extent, of judgment. But that's not our symbol. Our symbol is the cross, The cross doesn't compromise with sin. The cross cost Jesus Christ his life for our sin. And when we look at the cross and we look at the John 8 story, we don't compromise with the sin in our life and with the sin with others. But we say that Jesus paid the price for our sins. And we don't judge and humiliate people. We love people. We try to bring them to Christ where no matter where they are on their journey, they can find that forgiveness and that second or third or first or 200th chance that they need. Our symbol is the cross, and that's the cross of victory. Let's pray. This morning, if you're a Christian, I hope, I hope God is speaking to your heart about any adjustments you need to make. If you're not a Christian, I want to challenge you today where you're, where you're seated. If you're ready to give your life to Christ, would you pray with me? Would you pray and just say, Jesus, I'm a sinner. And I want to repent of my sins. Jesus, I believe you're God's son and that you died for me and arose for me. Jesus, come into my heart. And today I surrender my life to you. have your attention just for a second. We're going to stand in a moment. And when we do, here's what I want you to do. If you just prayed and asked Jesus to come in your life, are you ready to do that? When we stand, would you come this morning and talk to one of our ministers? Seal that deal with God today. Don't leave here without that being done. Maybe you'd like to join our church. We would love for you to do that. I've kind of laid out the church that we want to be and that I think we are, if that's what you're looking for. When we stand, would you come today? Would you come and and, uh, we'll help you do that?
Christian, maybe where you're standing or maybe at the altar, there's stuff in your life that you need to repent of. Do that today. Maybe today you need to repent of a judgmental hard heart. I plead with you to do that too. Let's stand and as God leads you, you come. We'll be down here waiting on you.